Thank you for downloading this sermon from Christ the Word Church. If you would like more information on how Christ the Word is reaching, raising, and teaching generations in Northwest Ohio and Southeast Michigan, please visit us online at ChristTheWord.com. So I'd like you to stand with me and let's turn in our Bibles or on the screen to Matthew 23, beginning in verse 16. Woe to you, blind guides! Notice that he says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, Pharisees, hypocrites. This time he says blind guides, which is another way of saying hypocrite. Uh, A blind guide is obviously hypocritical, right? Woe to you, blind guides, who say, whoever swears by the sanctuary, that is nothing. But whoever swears by the gold of the sanctuary is obligated. You fools and blind men, for which is more important, the gold or the sanctuary that sanctified the gold? And whoever swears by the altar, that's nothing, but whoever swears by the offering on it, he is obligated. You blind men, which is more important, the offering or the altar that sanctifies the offering? Therefore, whoever swears by the altar swears both by the altar and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the sanctuary swears both by the sanctuary and by him who dwells within it. And whoever swears by heaven swears both by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Heavenly Father, we pray that you'll speak through your word this morning, that by your Holy Spirit there will be power, that these words may not be mere words, but that they may bring conviction, and that you will be in the midst of our thoughts as we, as we dwell together on your word. Guide my tongue. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Over the years, over centuries, the error, the essential error of the Pharisees has been viewed in many different ways. Very often the way that that error is described by one group tells more about who they see as their enemies than about the Pharisees. So we call our enemies Pharisees and we attribute to those that we disagree with, those whom we're opposed to, character of the Pharisees. We call them Pharisees. We call them hypocrites. And in our, in our way of thinking, Pharisee equals hypocrite. But of course, Pharisee does not equal hypocrite. At least, Pharisees are not the full extent of hypocrisy. They're a certain type of hypocrisy. They're a subset of hypocrites, right? I'm not the full, um, the full camp of hypocrisy. There's hypocrisy that is non-religious, there's religious hypocrisy, there's, there's hypocrisy within even the, the true religion that's not pharisaical. Um, and so it's a distinct form of hypocrisy. For instance, Peter is a hypocrite. The apostle Peter, the rock that Jesus builds his church upon. Paul says to him, you're a hypocrite at some point later in his ministry when when he stops eating with the Gentile believers because Judaizers, who are people of the Pharisaical persuasion, Judaizers have come in and said, you can't eat with Gentiles. And so Peter stops and Paul comes and says, you're a hypocrite. You're asking the Gentiles to live by a law that you haven't been able to fulfill. So Peter's a hypocrite, right? But he's not a Pharisee. And Peter's hypocrisy is revealed by Jesus when he says, you know, feed my sheep, Peter. You said you would be true to me that you wouldn't. And I told you you would, and you denied it, and, and I was right. 
Peter understands that that's a charge of hypocrisy, and we understand it to be a charge of hypocrisy as well. It's not pharisaical, is it? Herod is a hypocrite. He's a hypocrite in a number of different ways. He claims to be righteous, but he has his, his brother's wife as his own. He took his brother's wife. He also claims to worship God, but he really doesn't. The Sadducees, prime hypocrites, they declare the word of God, but they won't accept all the word of God. They, they have their chosen portions, and in those chosen portions, they deny, even in them, obvious truths like the re resurrection. They're hypocrites, religious hypocrites, but not Pharisees. Pharisee is, well, it's a word that we use that seems to imply hypocrisy. Depending on which way we, we're going, it's uh, one form or another of hypocrisy. So, <laughs> the time of the Reformation, the Reformers called the Roman Catholic system and hierarchy because of its emphasis on oral tradition rather than the Word of God, on a received tradition that they held up as equal to or even over the Word of God because it interpreted the Word of God and thus was over the Word of God. They said Pharisee, and they were right to do so. But then the Roman Catholic Church has said to the Protestants in the century since the Reformation, you won't bow to the Pope, who's the vicar of Christ. You won't have anyone over you. And thus, you're like the Pharisees in their rejection of Jesus. Now, we might d dispute with them the characterization of the Pope as being the vicar of Christ and being someone that we should bow to, but no one can dispute that, that Protestantism, as it has gone on over the centuries, really hates authority, and thus is, there's some fairness in the Roman Catholic charge that we are hypocrites, right? And so, Pharisee, the term, the, the class, we don't understand it, but we sure use it. <laughs> we call others Pharisees. We say, you're a Pharisee. You're, and in our distinct milieu, our setting, when we call someone a Pharisee, it usually means that they're taking the law of God too seriously, that they are what we call legalists, that they are saying you have to obey God, and, the, and we say that's Pharisaism. You, you don't understand the grace of God. You don't grasp how, how kind and forgiving God is, and thus you're a Pharisee. And that's how we speak of it, but everyone uses the term. It's kind of like Nazi today, you know? We call people Nazis all the time, but it really has very little correlation with the original Nazis. It's just that we don't like them, and we want to call them the ugliest term we can. Religiously, that's often Pharisee. You Pharisee. You don't like it, do you? <laughs> if I called you a Pharisee, you'd get up in arms and go, don't call me a Pharisee. Yeah, I'm a hypocrite, but I'm not a Pharisee. Or maybe we'll deny you in being hypocrites. So in the end, Pharisee, what is it? Well, let me just begin by saying that the idea that the Pharisees were just pure legalists, that they thought that by their works, they could obligate God to give them heaven as though they were piling up a bank account of good works, of merits. Technically, the term is merits. Piling up a bank account of all these merits by obeying God, by doing these things, by, by consecrating portions of their lives and dedicating themselves to certain practices. It's, it's, it, it, there's a grain of truth to it, and there's a mountain of falsehood. 
And the mountain of falsehood is because it makes the Pharisees be something that you could never be and I could never be, and really no one's ever going to be. Because anyone who admits religiously that he has a need of God and that he's a sinner or she is a sinner, anyone who admits sin is going to recognize that no matter how much we pile up of our merits, that that sin persists, that it remains in our heart, that our sin is not relieved by our good deeds, and that we have need of forgiveness. Forgiveness was believed in by the Pharisees. The Pharisees believed in the mercy of God and the grace of God. And anyone who tells you that they didn't or that they don't is wrong. The Pharisees believed in grace. They believed in forgiveness. They believed in a sacrifice substituting for their own death, something taking their place. Now you say, David, how can it be that you say these things? It's, I've heard the opposite all my life. Well, a number of reasons. One is, first, the Pharisees were men of the Old Testament. They knew the Old Testament. They knew it through and through. And those of you who've read the Old Testament time after time, how can you deny that grace and forgiveness and mercy are woven all through it and that the need is for mercy, forgiveness, and grace? What is a sacrifice if it's not a statement that I can't pay this debt and that I need something to pay it on my behalf, right? The entire sacrificial system the Pharisees oversaw and were part of shouted the need for mercy. Every sacrifice was a call on God for mercy. How can you read the Old Testament, the Psalms of David, come across Psalms like Psalm 51, where David says, create in me a clean heart, O God, renew a right spirit with me. Cast me not away from thy presence. How can we read it and say, whoa, there's no mercy, there's no grace in the Old Testament. Isn't David pleading for grace? Did the Pharisees not read the Psalms? Had they never heard of Isaiah who said that there was a Lamb of God who would be the Messiah who would take away the sins of the world? It's nonsense, this idea. Pure nonsense that they had no idea about grace. In fact, they understood statements like the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? From Jeremiah. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother did conceive me. Psalm 51. We have all become like one who is unclean and our righteous deeds are like polluted garments. Isaiah 64. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Ecclesiastes 7. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned away everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah 53. They've all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Psalm 14. The Pharisees understood the need for grace. They understood the need for a sacrifice. They understood the need for forgiveness. Theoretically, and by definition, these were part of Pharisaical religion. 
theoretically, maybe they didn't always practice it, and they were hypocrites, but it was there. Now, we could demonstrate it by looking at the Old Testament. We could also demonstrate it by looking through the writings of the rabbis, which are found in the Talmud. And that is both the Mishnah, which largely predates Christ, and then the Gemara, which are the writings on the Mishnah, the commentary on the Mishnah, and the Mishnah is a commentary on the Old Testament. Okay, so you're getting generations removed from the, from the actual source. You have the, the, the Torah, which is the Old Testament. You have the Mishnah, which was an old commentary by rabbis on it. And then you have the Gemara, which is an even more voluminous commentary on the Mishnah, which is itself a commentary on And so you have all these portions of writing and oral tradition written down over time. And we would find, you would find, if you read through them, that in them there is, and I'm, I'm reading a, from a scholarly work, an introduction to a scholarly work that was many volumes and that was written, compiled early in 1900 by a couple Lutheran, famous, famous, verse sticker, famous, famous um, commentary on the New Testament using the Mishnah and the Gemara talking about how the views of Judaism of ancient time are reflected in the New Testament. And in the introduction, the author writes, the concept of a suffering Messiah called Ben, son of Joseph, Ben Joseph, is a persistent thread in rabbinic Judaism that's often ignored. Rabbinic Judaism is Pharisaism. And it's the same thing. The Messiah's suffering allowed for enough merits for all Israel to be saved. However, the, the full-blown concept of merits cannot be de demonstrated in the early rabbinic texts. In other words, this idea of piling up a treasury of merits was not there. It, was, it came more and more into being, as it did in Roman Catholicism over time in the church that we're a part of, which still has some of this idea in it, even though we don't call it merits. However, this concept of merits was unnecessary for many rabbinic thinkers because God's mercy could be relied on. As expressed in a beautiful midrash, which is a commentary on the Song of Songs, God treated Israel like a little child whom you forgive if they simply say sorry. When people run out of goodness, God adds grace. So this is the teaching of the Pharisees. Good works are not unnoticed by God, even though they don't earn your entrance to heaven. This is, again, the teaching of the Pharisees. Rewards such as a crown, are possible as a consequence of good works, but they don't get you into heaven. The only work that is required of all Israelites, according to the rabbis, the Pharisees, is faith, as exemplified by Abraham. This was the basis of salvation even in the first century, so that Sadducees were excluded from heaven and enemies of the Pharisees. Why? Because of their lack of faith in the resurrection. Now we think faith is our own possession, but it's the Old Testament that says the just shall live by faith, isn't it? It's found in Habakkuk, not just in the New Testament. So we end up with this question, what exactly was the problem with the Pharisees? They sound a lot like us, don't they? They believe in God's grace. They trust in his mercy. They look to a merciful God. 
They believe that faith is what pleases God. And you're saying, wait a second, David, that sounds like me. Well, I'm telling you these things as a warning. To let all of us know that, yes, they do sound like us, and it is very, very possible for you and me to be Pharisees. That the accusations we, we throw against others, oh, you're a Pharisee, usually have nothing to do with Pharisaism. More often than not, they reveal how we're falling short. So, Pharisaism is not graceless. It demands grace. But, looking at our passage this morning, we see Jesus speak of a certain type of hypocrisy practiced by the Pharisees. And I think we're going to have to go through the entire chapter to understand in a, in a full way the, the hypocrisy and the terrible sin of the Pharisees. We can't just take one of these woes. We have to take them together. But this, is, this shows us one aspect of the elephant that is the Pharisaical life. Maybe the trunk, it may be the tail. It's just one aspect. It is a part of it. So, what is the fundamental sin that Jesus attacks here? What is this sin that's so dangerous that Jesus attacks and attacks the Pharisees who are by every measure and in every way it would seem the ones who should be his friends? In these verses, Jesus provides one view of that sin and it's through the lens of oaths. Now, what is an oath? Well, it's, it's to swear something. It's to take a solemn vow calling upon God as your witness that what you state is true. That's an oath. It's to make a solemn statement of the veracity, the truthfulness of what you say, calling upon God as your witness that you are speaking the tr truth. The Talmud, which is the writings of the rabbis, the work of the Pharisees, contains hundreds of pages on oaths disputing with each other the rabbis, specifying in mind-numbing detail how an oath is binding, how it is not, how many sins might be broken when you do, might be committed when you break an oath, how many clauses in the oath are binding. And here I'd like, if you would, thank you. This is strictly straight out of the Talmud. And it's about oaths, and there are dozens of pages about oaths in the Talmud. And this gives an example. Each of these Talmudic writings about oaths begins with an example. I swear that I won't eat, and he ate and drank. He is liable on only one count. I swear that I won't eat and drink, and he ate and drank. He is liable on two counts. Now, you see A, B, 1, 1, A, and this is a response by another rabbi. On the basis of M, 32, A, it appears that drinking is subsumed under eating, but eating is not subsumed under drinking. Do you get this? So, eating includes drinking, but drinking does not include eating. So, if you make an oath that you 
will not eat, you can't drink either. But if you make an oath that you will not drink, well, you can eat. All right, so can we go on to the next one? Uh, Jonah derived the two of them from the following, okay? And this is Rabbi Jonah, R is Rabbi Jonah, derived, and this is the oral teaching of Rabbi Jonah written down by someone. Rabbi Jonah said, okay? Derived the two of them from the following. Therefore, I have said to the people of Israel, no person among you shall eat blood. Leviticus 17, 12. Now, how shall we interpret the passage? If it speaks of blood that has congealed, has it not been, has it not been taught that blood that has congealed is neither food nor drink? And then it references the Torah. But thus must we interpret the matter. The blood is just as it is, that is liquid, and yet the Torah has referred to consuming it as is, as eating. Consequently, eating encompasses drinking. Okay, let's go to the next. One may then interpret the Mishnah. This is the Pharisees, okay? One may then interpret the Mishnah passage as following the view of Rabbi Akiba, for Rabbi Akiba has said eating any amount at all is an act of eating, just as it's stated at M31 above. Let's, can we go on one more? Oh. And has it not been taught that he who mashes forbidden fat and swallowed it, he who coagulates blood and ate it, it is of the volume of an olive's bulk, even if it's just that. He is, uh, are, we, are we making our point clear? That is this incredible driving down and it's in oaths, it's in matters regarding women, it's in areas of food, it's in terms of ritual purity, it's divided into a number of subheadings and it's just filled with this kind of logical arguing about, well, have we broken an oath? Have we not broken an oath? If you made an oath not to eat, when you, when you ate blood, were you, were you eating or drinking? You understand? And of course, at this point, you're saying, yeah, this is insane, right? Pure insanity. Okay. So what is the sin of the Pharisees that Jesus attacks here? It has to do with the oath the solemn declaration that our words are true on pain of punishment by God. We call on God as a witness when we make an oath. There's hundreds of pages, well, dozens of pages in the Talmud. It's on my computer, so I can't really count the pages easily. Dozens of pages on oaths. And in mind-boggling detail, whether it's binding, when, how, how many sins we commit by breaking it. Now, it is this kind of thinking that Jesus attacks here. But note carefully that, they're, that he is not attacking just randomly their, their teaching about oaths. What is valid, what is not, what is binding, what is not. There is a basic underlying error that lies behind these distinctions that are made by the Pharisees that Jesus refers to over what oaths are binding and what are not. There is a basic error. Notice first that the oath by the temple, okay, if you swear by the temple, the rabbi said, it's not obligatory. You are not obliged. But 
if you swear by the gold, the offerings of gold to the temple from the worshipers, well then, that is binding. You swear by the temple? No. But the, the gold that's offered in the temple to God, binding, all right? So, that's the first example, and he corrects the Pharisees by saying the temple sanctifies the gold and is thus obviously greater than the gold. And then the second example is the altar or the offering on the altar. And in the very same way, they say, look, if you swear by the altar that is in the temple, at the center of the temple, not binding. But if you swear by the offering that's on the altar that people make, binding, all right? Understand how these two correspond? The altar, the temple, not binding. The gold, the offering, binding. Does it begin to show you something about the Pharisees? Placing the offering on the altar sanctified it. The altar is therefore greater than the sacrifice. The moment before it was placed on the altar, it was a hunk of meat. Placing it on the altar makes it something, something bigger, something greater. The gold was gold and nothing. It was of no importance before it was brought into the temple and offered to God. The temple is greater than the gold. Jesus is correcting their idea here. But what is underlying is two things in the Pharisaic way of thinking. First, they value what they do more highly than what God does. In both instances, you understand the thing that they bring is more important than the thing that God gives, the temple or the altar. No, the gold is more important and the offering is more important than the thing that God gave. They count themselves more important than God. There's a second thing as well here, okay? And this is the kind of crazy thing. And I hope it's already struck you. If it hasn't, then you haven't had the time to think on it. I have. But what's really crazy is that the one oath is not binding, and the other is, all right? Now, what makes an oath binding? Well, what makes an oath binding is that you're calling God as your witness, right? Do you understand what I'm saying? So if you swear by the temple, that God's not going to hear. But if you swear by the gold of the temple, then God's going to hear. If you swear by the altar, nah, God doesn't hear. You're not bound. But if you swear by what's on the altar, you're bound. And so in a sense, what these men are saying is, you know what? We can define what God listens to and what he doesn't. We can define where God is involved and where God is not. We know that God loves your offering. We know that God loves your gold. But the temple, the altar, you say something and you swear by the altar, doesn't matter. <laughs> God doesn't hear. God's not listening. You're not bound. That's what it means when you say you're not bound. God is not listening. And so you understand that the God of the Pharisees is not a sovereign God. He is not a God who listens to every word. And you understand why Jesus says, don't swear. Every word you speak is spoken in the presence of God. 
Every word you speak is an oath before God. God is listening to every word. He knows every thought. You can't escape it by these silly machinations. God is listening. And now we come, I think, to something that strikes closer to home. And that is that these men have a very sophisticated way to say, I don't need to worry about God. You know, I turn God on and I turn God off. And I allow him in these very specific subsets of my life to have authority and to listen and to hold me to what I've said. And then in this vast bulk of life, what I say, even oaths I make by heaven, by the altar, by the temple, no, no, I haven't sworn by the throne of God, I haven't sworn by the gold, I haven't sworn by the offering. And so what we see, the essence of the Pharisees here, is they have no fear of God. They simply don't fear God. They only fear God when they think it's easy and when they're going to be consciously embracing the fear of God. It's kind of like many of us, the week that we spend sinning, 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 and then we come to church on Sunday morning, we have the prayer of confession, and we say, oh yeah, at this moment I need to get on my knees and formally fear God. I'm going to formally fear God. It's one of the reasons why at times I wonder if we should do the prayer of confession. I'm always going to do it. But I wonder, because does it, does it remind us that we are to spend every moment confessing to God how wicked we are? Or does it substitute for a heart of repentance? If we really believed that God was hearing every word and knowing every thought, if we thought that God couldn't be turned off and was intimately acquainted with everything we are and do, and we looked at God as he is, awesome, fierce, holy, could we live? Many of us suffer from anxiety. Some of us even go to counselors for anxiety. How many of us suffer from anxiety that God sees our sin and knows what we have thought? Let me offer to you as a source of anxiety the wrath of God at sin. But if you're a Pharisee, you say, no, I have grace. I've taken care of my sin. I'm doing the right things. I can handle it. I know how to deal with God. That's what the Pharisees do. I have grace. You know, the grace of God. And they wallow in sin. And they commit sins with impunity, thinking that God is just like them. So let's think about this woe one last time. The gifts being greater than the temple where God dwells. 
the Pharisaic thought. The offering is the Pharisees thought greater than the altar. The throne of God binding greater than the heavens which are unbinding where he dwells. But what makes the temple? Right? What makes the temple? The temple in Jerusalem. Or our house of worship. What makes it? Jesus says it's the dwelling place of God. That God comes down and meets with us in this room. God is here. So it makes it. So it made the temple. Not the temple itself, but the God of the temple. And what makes the offering? Not the fact that you give it. Before there was an altar, you might want to give it, but God couldn't be approached. The very fact that God has given an altar where you may bring an offering is what turns that that bleeding hunk of meat into a sacrifice. The presence of the altar. Right? The altar. And what makes the altar? What makes the altar precious? The altar that's at the center of the temple where God dwells, that altar precious beyond words so that it sanctifies this hunk of ox or goat or lamb and God is propitiated, his wrath removed by that offering. What makes it? What makes the altar something? The altar in the temple. This table here, which is in a sense an altar. What makes it something? Well, it's that this table, the altar in the center of the temple, is modeled on a greater altar. And where is that altar? Where is the great altar? It's in heaven. It's in heaven before the presence of God. Standing before the throne of God is an altar. Right? The altar is in heaven. So that in Isaiah, we read that Isaiah, when he was... In the year that Uzziah died, he's high and he sees God in his heavens high and lifted up. And the train of his robe fills the temple. And Isaiah sees God there and he says, Woe of me, for I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. And I have seen the, uh, the Lord, the Almighty. And an angel goes and takes a coal from the altar that's before God with tongs and he touches Isaiah's lip with the coal and Isaiah is told behold this has touched your lips and your iniquity is taken away and your sin is forgiven what was burned on the altar takes away his sin The altar in heaven is capable of taking away sin in the way that human altars only reflect and cannot do. That's what makes the altar something. We learn in Revelation that under the altar in heaven, there are the souls of those who were slain for the word of God. They are under the altar somehow in heaven. 
So the altar is precious and it's protection for God's saints. It's a treasure. And under it are the souls of those who gave their lives up for Jesus Christ. And that altar, it speaks in Revelation twice. And I heard the altar saying, John says, Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The altar says this as the bowls of divine wrath are poured out on the residents of earth. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, it says. And God has given them blood to drink as they deserve. And the fire of heaven falls on earth, scorching its inhabitants with fire. So the altar says, under which the saints, the souls of the saints rest. It says, yes, God, judge them. And then the fire descends from heaven in judgment on the earth in accord with what the altar has said. And that same fire that cleanses Isaiah puts the men and women of earth who are in rebellion against God to death and ultimately fuels the fire of hell. The same altar, the same fire. And so the fire of the altar offers wrath just as it offers forgiveness. What is this fire, this altar that has such power? What is offered on this altar in heaven that so divides mankind that to one portion of mankind it's salvation and protection and life and to the other it's judgment and wrath and fire. Well, the altar is the everlasting altar where the Son of God, the Lamb of God, was sacrificed from the foundations of the world. Only the blood of the Lamb of God has the power to save. And those who are condemned are guilty of that blood. This is the glory of the altar in the temple. It's a replica of heaven's altar. It is the altar pointing to the great sacrifice that transforms heaven and earth, the sacrifice of the eternal Son of God. And so we have these pious madmen, these insane maniac Pharisees, saying that their offerings are more valuable than the altar, that the blood of a goat is more valuable than the altar of heaven on which the Son of God suffers for human sin. And they are blasphemers and insane. They stand literally, physically in the presence of the Lamb of God, who is days from being put to death for their sin. The Messiah, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the eternal sacrifice, and they ignore him. They hate him. They think themselves not needing him. They scorn his altar. They prefer instead their insignificant sacrifices that only represent the glory of what he will do. They scorn his temple and they prefer their gold to his glory, their offerings to his presence. These men are madmen. Rather than coming to terms with Jesus and fearing God and bowing in worship and confessing their sin, they go about saying, well, I have grace. God's grace will get me through. I have grace. And they do not fear God. 
and they are you and me. Jesus is with us. He's here in our midst. He hears your, your voice as you're speaking in your heart right now. He's heard everything. He knows it. He watches. He listens. He speaks to us, and we hear him. He speaks through his word, through the preaching and the teaching. He speaks through our reading it. But we prefer our power to his. And we live by our judgments and our thoughts rather than what he has declared in his word. We assume, like the Pharisees, that he's going to submit to our judgments. He'll do what we say he'll do. So if we say it's congealed blood and it's, well, then God must agree. We think we control God, the one who fills heaven and earth. We think he will be swayed and won by our gold, our offerings. But God is here. God is with us. And his power is immense. I'm reminded as I think of the Pharisees, of the fools who get drunk and then decide to climb high tension power tower. One of those electrical transmission towers and they think they're going to go up there and look at the night and being drunk it seems like a good idea. And they have to make it to the first rungs of the ladder which always well above their head but they make it there and then they start climbing up and they go up and up and up. You read about it every once in a while. They get up and they think man this is fun. Man I've been told it's dangerous but it's not dangerous until they reach the point that the electricity arcs through them rather than around them, passing around them, and, and they die. The whole world is living like this. Acknowledging God, acknowledging the need of grace, acknowledging the need for forgiveness, but going about our business unconcerned, without fear. Only fear will drive you to the Lamb of God. Only recognizing that you can't play God, that you can't turn him to your purposes will drive you to the Lamb of God. You and I think we can, we can manipulate God. We think we can make him turn our way. We live our lives in this world as though he really doesn't exist and we have no fear of God. These Pharisees are standing in the very presence of Jesus Christ, the Son of God who's going to die. They're going to put him to death. And they have no fear. No fear at all. Stop worrying about the things of this world. Stop worrying about all the little things that drive you and your anxieties. All of us should be seeking medicine for this great existential terror of an angry God who has set one source of salvation and that source is in our presence. The dying Lamb of God. This is the Pharisees. No fear. No fear. They can manipulate God.
God is about as manipulable as any terrifying thing, any deeply terrifying thing. For me, when I think of the fear of God and how, how awesome it is, I always think of a dam. I think of the dams I've been to, the big dams in the West. And on the one side, you have this vast reservoir that stretches for miles and miles and miles deep, four or 500 feet deep. You, you really, on the one side, the upstream side, you don't have any idea how deep it is. But then you look on the downstream side where the dammed water is not, but where it's allowed through. And you see this chasm and this gorge, and you understand that deep in the bowels of that dam, there are these sluices, and through those sluices are moving this water, and that water, as it runs through those sluices into the dam, it's powering turbines, and those turbines produce enough electricity to power the whole city of Los Angeles. And I look at it, and I say, the potential, the power, and it gives me the willies in the very heart of my being to stand on top of one of those dams. You feel a little bit of vibration and you understand the power. Brothers and sisters, we need to have a greater understanding of the nature of God. We need to understand how great and powerful he is and the price of our redemption so that we look at grace not as a band-aid, but the blood of Jesus, something to be cherished, something precious, not just a band-aid thrown on a little mosquito bite, but the only solution for our terribly sinful lives. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus, who is the, the answer to our sin, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We pray, Heavenly Father, that all of us may turn to Jesus and away from our sin, that we may not mouth the platitudes of the Pharisees, but that we may truly understand the danger our souls are in unless we come to terms with the Lamb of God. Father, may those here this morning who've never come to terms with Jesus take that step now, offering their faith, their lives, their hearts for his control, repenting of the past and hoping for a great and glorious future. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.